0: Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, good evening, and welcome to session 17, where we're getting back into the book of Revelation proper. Uh, there is a little bit of ground that we want to cover before we get into that, uh, just to kind of sum up what we learned in the Old Testament. And I gave you a couple of Old Testament readings last time to kind of cap that off, discussing the day of the Lord and what all it involves as we take a look at Daniel's 70 weeks. But before we get any further, anytime that we approach the Word of God, we always want to do so in a season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, it is again uh, that we come to you with praise and adoration for this book of books that you've given us, Lord, for your wisdom and for the care that you took to give us this remarkable unveiling of who you are and of who we are in you. So bless this time, Lord. Uh, Open our ears to your message as well as our hearts and our minds to its application and to its understanding, so that we might not only be blessed, but we may also discover the words to bless others. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, as we get into this session, again, we're going to be recapping some of the stuff that we learned from the Old Testament. But above all, this and next session are probably the sessions where you need to claim Acts 17.11 the most. Which is again where uh, where Doctor Luke tells you not to trust anything that I tell you, but to do your own homework. So as we're going off, Revelation is piggybacking a lot off of prophetic images in the rest of the Bible. There are three, uh, three big examples of religious imagery in the Old Testament scripture. More often than not, if you get anything in the kingdom where a prophet is saying something, God always, almost always describes himself as, thus saith the Lord thy God, who brought thee forth from the land of Egypt. This is how he identifies himself as the God who redeems, the God who frees, the God who loosens chains and sets the people apart to become holy. So there are three prophetic echoes on national um, national desolation and then restoration, or national redemption. That's the slavery and redemption from Egypt, the exile and the return from Babylon, and strangely enough, future casting, history written in advance, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus himself picks up on that really quickly. Now, As we went through the Old Testament, just by way of review really quickly, we we looked at the book of Ruth and discovered a picture in one person of the exiled, a picture in one person of the bride, the Gentile bride, and a picture in one person of the goel, or the kinsman redeemer. We took a look at Jeremiah chapter 32, where we saw the scroll intended and sealed for redemption and how that is an echo of what we're going to read about this, cha- this, uh, this study. Ezekiel chapter 1, where we saw the throne and the living beings, which is uh, the language that John himself has to use to parallel what he's seeing in order to describe what he's seeing. We took a look at Daniel's chapter 9 and 12, where we talked about the 70 weeks of redemptive history. Again, history taught in advance through prophecy and through the great distress or the great tribulation, what in other texts will be called the time of Jacob's troubles. and Zechariah chapter 11, where where the prophet actually gives us a physical description of the Antichrist and some of the damage that will be inflicted on him bodily. Now, to cover the passages that I asked you to read from the previous session, uh, turn with me really quickly in your copy of God's Word to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30 where we're going to be taking a look specifically to verses 7 excuse me verses 7 through 11 The chapter itself begins with the words on that day referring to the day of the Lord and the prophet writes how awful that day will be There will be none other like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. So there's already uh, two descriptors. First of all is that this would be a period of tribulation, and it is is zeroed in specifically on who? On Israel itself, on the people of Israel. I want you to notice something else. More often than not in the Bible, when someone is renamed... For instance, Saul of Tarsus became Paul, the Apostle Paul. His old name never gets reused. There are two big uh, examples where it does get reused in other characters. Simon Barjona, otherwise known as Peter. And Jacob, whose name literally means to catch the heel, who was renamed by God as Israel, which translates to who struggles with God in memorial and kind of prophetically as well of the, the match where they literally wrestled each other uh, in the wilderness. But any time that either of those two examples, anytime time that they start thinking in the flesh rather than in the spirit, they their names revert. So right now he's the prophet, is, is writing down effectively what God is breathing through him, is telling him. Um, but he refers to it as the time of Jacob's trouble, meaning that at the time that this tribulation happens, it will be focused with intent upon the people of Israel, and it will be having to do with wanting them to repent of something. So moving on, on that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of angel armies. I will break his yoke, from your neck. Now, he's not talking about Jacob's yoke because Jacob's the one who has the yoke cast around him. The him in this case is referred by many commentaries as the coming world ruler or or the oppressive regime at the time. Again, this is part of the now but not yet. This is talking about a captivity, and, and there is a captivity in Jeremiah's audience right now. But a lot of things in the passage that you'll see not only reflect that time, but it also echoes into the future. Him, singular person, being one of them. I will break his yoke from about your neck and tear off your chains, and strangers will never again enslave him. That's the big indicator that this is not a past event. Rome enslaved Israel for all intents and purposes back in the early first century. Well, actually, preceding the first century because of uh, of Pompey Magnus verse 9 they will serve the lord their god and david their king now david does not rise from the grave to retake his throne here so we're talking about a prophesied emergence of a new king and and god is declaring that he himself will raise up from david's family this king verse 10 as for you my servant jacob there's that name again do not be afraid this is the lord's declaration And do not be discouraged, Israel. For without fail, I will save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their captivity. Jacob will return and have calm and quiet with no one fighting them. How I wish that this had been fulfilled. But to this day, this does not describe the the region of the Levant where Israel is located. There is no peace right now in Jerusalem for i will be with you this is the lord's declaration to save you i will bring destructions on excuse me destruction on all the nations where i have scattered you now as people who are currently residing in a nation that is the home of some of the jewish diaspora that should give us pause Because that means at some point in our history in advance, some point in our future, leading up to the day of the Lord, all the nations of the earth will turn their back on the people of Israel, both the ones that are living in those extended nations and those within the borders of what we now call the state of Israel. So as citizens of the United States, if this particular government endures into that age, A time is prophesied. You're reading it right now. It's the black and white of Scripture. A time will occur where the people in the government will turn their backs on the nation of Israel and God declares, again, black and white of Scripture, that he will repay anyone that abuses them. So as citizens of that nation, take note. However, I will not bring destruction on you. I will discipline you justly, and I will will by no means leave you unpunished. Now, that's another interesting case. In the echo of of history, as we're looking at things prophetically, um, the people of Israel have their own kingdom established. And just as the, the, the book of the Judges on throughout their history, they start out in the hands, for instance, they start out in the hands of Joshua. After Joshua dies, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And a spiral begins, a cycle where that gets worse and worse and worse, worse with each time. Where they have their own kingdom, they have prosperity, God is smiling upon them, and in their prosperity they grow proud, and as they grow proud, they grow distant. And as they grow distant, they grow adulterous, and they forget about the God who gave them all of these blessings to begin with. So they turn their backs on God, but God remembers His covenant. And so God releases His hand of protection from them. And the surrounding nations come in as an instrument of God's judgment. And they cry out to God in repentance. And God punishes those that abused Israel. And he puts his hand to protection, and the blessings begin again. But with each telling of that story, countless times in the book of Judges alone, all throughout the kingdom era, into the modern era, you could argue, this is the fulfillment of the last time that cycle ever repeats itself. Israel basically has turned its back on God in fact, in favor of a coming world leader. And we're going to see that in the book of Revelation. They sign a covenant with a guy uh, who reestablishes temple worship and then he breaks that covenant. But I'm getting ahead of ourselves. But what you need to know is that the day of the Lord is specific to Israel in God wanting the people that he has called by his name to turn their faces back to him. That is the point of Daniel's 70th week. So, in this passage of scripture, we find out that Israel will be a permanent ethnicity, that as a people it will never be wiped away from the face of the planet, that David's family will again claim the throne. This did not happen post Babylon. This has not happened since the Babylonian exile. So, they can't be referring to the Babylonian exile. This has to be a future event. Israel will uh, receive God's prosperity, but also his correction. Israel is also the focus of God's, uh, God's designs in this case and the nations that surround them and are hostile to them, both the people that are in the diaspora as well as the nation of Israel itself, those who abuse them, they themselves will suffer the wrath of God. Zechariah chapter 12, the passage beginning concerning Israel. A pronouncement, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. A declaration of the Lord who stretched out the heavens, who laid the foundation of the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. So he's identifying himself as the creator. Not just as the redeemer, not just as a figure from previous history, the way that he is wont to do, but he is saying, this is God who made everything that is, including you. Verse 2, look. I will make Jerusalem a cup that causes staggering or trembling for the peoples who surround the city. Now that should grab your attention right there, given that we're in a revelation study. The siege against Jerusalem will also involve Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who try to lift it will injure themselves severely when all the nations of the earth will gather against her. In other words, uh, they'll, they'll try to attack Jerusalem the way that a strong man tries to pick up a boulder, but the nations of the world will effectively suffer a hernia for the, for the attempt, a joint pain in all of them. Hard to pick up a rock God's sitting on, absolutely. Verse 4, on that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. Incidentally, horses, uh, they have four prophetic uses. They are um, symbolic of the military. They're symbolic of watchfulness and speed. They're symbolic of judgment. And they're... uh, well, we'll get into that later on, but I want you to keep those things in mind. In this case, military and judgment. I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, but I will keep a watchful eye on the house of Judah, but strike all the horses of the nations with blindness. In other words, their eyes and their speed, the ability of their military to invoke their power will be cut off. Then each of the leaders of Judah will think to himself the residents of Jerusalem, are my strength through the, Lord's, the, through the Lord of armies, their God. In other words, they will know that this is the people of God, without doubt. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the people around them on the right and the left, while Jerusalem continues to be inhabited on its site in Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of David's house and the glory of Jerusalem's residence may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that on that day, the one who is the weakest among them will be like David on that day. Remember, Saul killed thousands of the Philistines and David, tens of thousands. Yes, this is this is him saying that, uh, that even the weakest person In Jerusalem, God will add strength to, and that person will be as mighty as David was in his prime. The house of David will be like God, so those who are actually descended from David will be propped up even greater. Why? Because one of them just happens to be God. Like the angel of the Lord set before them, on that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, underline that verse in your copy of God's Word. Because I want you to note that in the coalition that forms against Israel in what we call the Battle of Armageddon or the severleth Battle of Megiddo, The nations that go to war against Jerusalem, that gather on the outskirts of the city to invade, will not survive. Their power, their statehood, their sovereignty, their military might, all of it will be stripped from them. So there will be, in that final battle, there will be a coalition of nations that surrounds Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will be strengthened by God and will be considered a cup of staggering, a a cause for panic and fear to those armies. And they will know that God is with Jerusalem. God will strengthen and defend them, particularly the inhabitants that, that are descendants of David. I'm suspecting that some of them may not even know that they are, but one in particular will be. The nations attacking Jerusalem will be destroyed. Continuing on with that chapter, and I want you to pay very close attention to that, to this. Um, I know it's it's highly conjecturable, but it's a belief that I hold. That just as the priests in the days of Herod the Great were able to run back to Herod and say, according to the works of the prophet, the words of the prophet, this is where the Messiah is to be born, I believe that when Jerusalem stands surrounded and the battle of Armageddon is about to take place, that somebody will come up with this exact passage or something to that effect to basically instruct the people of Israel themselves so that the scales will fall away from their eyes and see their Messiah. So with verse 10, then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer upon the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. Think about that for just a second when we consider our Messiah. Number one, he was nailed to uh, 10 by 12s or whatever they were in, in the Roman units, but also a career Roman military official disobeyed a direct order in proving that Jesus was dead. Because the priests at the time didn't want someone to be someone's execution to extend past sundown into a Sabbath day, they requested that the, uh, the those that were being crucified's legs be broken so that they would suffocate and die sooner before the day switched over. But the Roman centurion looked at Jesus, saw that he was already demised, and instead of breaking his legs, in fulfillment of prophecy, he did what? He took his spear and he lanced his side to prove that he had predeceased. Now that should be interesting to you, prophecy buffs, because uh, part of the, th- the the necessity of a Passover lamb is that it not have its bones broken. In fact, John himself picks up on this when he's writing the gospel. But anyway. They will look on me, whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. Now John in Revelation picks up on this passage. Read that again when we talk about the woman and the child. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. Going on with verse 11, on that day in the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning of Hedad Ramon against the plain, in the plain of Megiddo. Now, Har Megiddo is garbled up into English as Armageddon. So when I talk about the Megiddo Valley, I am talking about what you have probably always heard of as Armageddon, just so that you know that. But the actual Jewish name for that, which is, I'm going to say it, and it's still Hebrew coming out of an anglicized mouth. But when I say Megiddo, that's the place that I'm talking about, the place where Armageddon. And, and there have been so many battles on the field of Megiddo that when I say Armageddon, the battle of the whatevereth, I'm I'm not being glib. There there have been numerous military engagement there without counting. It just so happens that the, the final climactic battle of the people of God versus the people of this world will happen there as well. Verse 12, The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of David's house by itself, And their women by themselves, the family of Nathan's house by itself, they're picking up on, on the fact that the royal line plus the royal officials, David being the pro, excuse me, Nathan being the prophet of David, all of them will weep bitterly for the fact that they realize what was done to the Messiah, their Messiah, the family of Nathan's house by itself and their women themselves, the family of Levi's house, the priests as well, and their women themselves, the family of Shemai, by itself, and their women themselves, all the remaining families, and every family by themselves, and their women, by, women by themselves. In other words, every Jewish family will have the scales removed from the eyes of their heart, and they will remember, and they will recognize Jesus as Messiah. Every mouth shall excuse me. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is. Lord, unto the glory of God the Father. And this is that coming to pass. And it's actually echoed in Hosea, um, whom they have pierced. An ending to spiritual blindness will concern. Again, that's what we picked up on in, in uh, Romans chapter 11. Israel will have a period of national repentance. And uh, John talks about that. He, he echoes he, the words that we just read. He pens again when he sees Jesus on the cross. The prophetic echo, uh, the enemies of Israel are defeated yet again at Megiddo. The enemies of Israel are defeated yet again, the same place, and God will defend Israel. Now, I want to mention uh, Hosea 5.15 because Zechariah is basically acting as a commentary on this single verse. This is one of those verses that if you have... Um, any doubts about how the second coming, how the day of the Lord will take place. Hosea 5.15, I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt, until they realize their offense, in some of your translations, and they will seek my face and they will search for me in their distress. In other words, just like the time of Babylon, just like the time in Egypt, just like the time of Gideon, Israel will come under major distress. And in their distress, they will realize their fault. They will turn back to God. Only this time, they will realize their Messiah has come. And they will ask him to return. And this time, he will answer. So, Timeline of redemptive history based on what we've covered so far. I bet you didn't know that so much of Revelation was in the Old Testament. Timeline of redemptive history, and we're going to start with what is described in Daniel's 69 weeks, or 70 weeks, but the first 69. There will be a decree to, to restore Jerusalem, and the 69 weeks will last from that decree's giving to the declaration of the Messiah the Messiah the King, which takes place on Palm Sunday as he writes, as he fulfills the prophecy, and they shout Hosanna, Hosanna Yeshua. And as they sing Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then there is an interval between week 69 and week 70 where the church age takes place, where the Gentile bride is being gathered, as reflected prophetically so wonderfully in the book of Ruth. Uh, the prince who shall come will begin to assess power at the end of that interval, toward the end of that interval. And there will be increased destruction, increased moral decay, and increased violence. Then the gathering of the church will happen when the fullness of the Gentiles have been brought in, when the last name of the people who are outside of Israel is written in the Lamb's book of life. The church will be called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now again, and I, I, I say this glibly, but there's a reason behind it. There are many that say that uh, we won't be able, that we'll go through the tribulation too, and that uh, we will be called up at the end of the tribulation period. The thing about that is that kind of makes the wedding supper of the Lamb into a box lunch. Uh, so we'll we'll go up and then we'll come back down, because as Christ comes back as the conquering king, uh, uh, Yeshua ben David, Jesus son of David, when he comes back as the lion of the tribe of Judah, not as the lamb, uh, we will be with him. He will be surrounded by not only the armies of the angels but but with all the saints as well. So for us to go up and then come immediately back down doesn't make for much of a honeymoon. Uh, let's see, the gathering of the church, the Harpazzo, the next period, the 70th week will begin. So there will be, basically, the enemy will ramp up sin in the world, and then he will identify himself as the answer to that sin. He will identify himself as the antidote to try to bring correction, basically trying to say to God, to his face, I can do a better job of being God than you. So there will be three and a half years of satanic rule, where a covenant will be established and a false peace will settle in. Part of the identifying fingerprints of this covenant will be that temple worship in the Mosaic fashion will resume. Again, we're going back to Daniel 9. Then the Antichrist will make himself fully known and fully realized by breaking that covenant midway through. So in 70 weeks, there'll be a three and a half year period and at the halfway point, uh, the, the, the coming world leader, Antichrist, or whatever you want to call him, uh, will break his covenant with Israel, specifically. He will try to set up an idol of his own image in the Holy of Holies, the abomination of desolation as spoken by the prophet Daniel, referenced by Jesus in Matthew 24, uh, and then the attacks on Jerusalem will begin. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, the time of David's troubles. In the whole land, this is the Lord's decoration. Two-thirds will be cut off and die. I'm going to read that again. Because there are many that think that the Holocaust was the tribulation period. It was a dress rehearsal for something far, far worse. And I, 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 I hate that this is even part of the Word of God. This is one of those sections that you don't want to read because it's just too horrible to think about. But in Hitler's Holocaust, World War II, you can think of World War II as a dress rehearsal for what will happen later. The rise of somebody, the use of a, um, not a secret, but an overt image identifying with him that Mark of the Beast will not be covert. It will not be secret. It will not be hidden away. Like the swastika was used, it will be something that is out in the open, declaring the person that bears it to be in ownership of or linked to the Antichrist. So this is not a microchip hidden under the skin. This isn't a, a, a name written in a computer somewhere. This is something That people will wear on themselves and get tattooed on themselves to personally identify themselves as a party member under the enemy. They won't be able to buy or sell anything, not because they won't have the technology, but because they will be persecuted. World War II was just a dress rehearsal. One out of every three Members of the Jewish race, it is estimated, was killed during that Holocaust. When this occurs, more than 66% of them, two-thirds will be cut off and die, but a third will be left in it. I will put this third through fire. This is a a refining fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name. And I will what? I will answer them. Do you see how all these passages are linked? They repent, Christ returns. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say to me, the Lord is our God. So after, uh, after the peace is broken, Israel will eventually declare, Israel will come under attack, but it will declare its national repentance as we have just read three separate times. And the judgment of God will be poured out upon the nations. Christ himself will rescue the people of Israel. And that will, in, that will begin the, the thousand-year political rule, earthly rule of Christ. So that is, in a nutshell, um, history laid for us in advance of the redemptive history. How many of you have ever seen a Revelation timeline constructed? Some of you have. Okay, good. All right. Let's talk about the kinsman redeemer for just a second because as we get into chapter 6, and the scroll is produced, we need to understand what that scroll of seven seals is. Ruth actually gives us a huge indicator. Ruth is a story about what is in Hebrew referred to as a goel, which refers to two things. It is the same office within a family, but it is designated as a kinsman avenger or a kinsman redeemer. A member of a family whose job is to seek justice for the family and to seek redemption of the family's land. And in some cases, enslaved people, that's important too. Please write that in your notes. A Goel is the avenger who seeks justice, and he is also the redeemer who both redeems land property that is assigned to individual families from the time of the covenant of, of, um, of Joshua, He also is responsible for redeeming back members of his family that are so far indebted that they had to sell themselves into slavery. Do you see what the image here is conjuring up? Now there are qualifications in the book of Revelation especially. I've kind of added of Adam there. But the person, the the Goel, whoever it is for a family, he has to be a kinsman, he has to be a relative in the case of, of uh, the, revel- the, the restoration or the redemption of the world, he has to be a kinsman of Adam. He has to be one of us. He has to be a human being. He has to be qualified to act. In this case, he has to be qualified in that he has never sinned. And the book of Revelation in the previous chapter, chapter 5, also said uh, that John wept convulsively, sobbed convulsively, because he knew this. He knew his Old Testament. He had a three and a half year, uh, th- give or take, relationship with Jesus Christ, learning the Bible from him directly, much less what he had back growing up in the synagogue. He had the equivalent of a master's degree, if not doctoral degree, education in the scriptures. So he understood what was going on. This was a fulfillment of Jeremiah for him as when the scroll was constructed, also of, of Ruth as the kinsman redeemer. So uh, he had to be qualified to act. He had to be the qualifications again, sinless, son of Adam, human being, and uh, had to be the person that redeemed all of creation. And again, I sob convulsively, John tells us, because there was no one found who qualified. And it was, I believe it was one of the elders that says, wait a second, I know someone. Thankfully, so do we. Uh, He has to be capable of assuming all the obligations associated with that redemption, so if you own something, you have to be able to take care of it and to legally take uh, pay its taxes and so forth. But you also have to be willing. You have to be able to, you, of your own free will, you have to volunteer for the service. Not my will, but thine be done. So let's review Ruth really quickly as the image of this going taking place. Boaz acts as the Goel for the, uh, for the family of Naomi, whose husband and sons have died. So Boaz provides mercy for Naomi through the act of redemption, and he provides a future for Ruth by acting as a Leverite husband. Ruth, who is a converted Gentile bride... I want you to take note of that because then who are these people in terms of their prophetic image? Foreshadowing of the book. Naomi was exiled from the land when it was made desolate through a a famine. Ruth learns about God through Naomi. Ruth worships Naomi's God. Ruth learns of Boaz's ways Through Naomi, remember, it's Naomi that coaches him, coaches her, to tell her, okay, this is how you have to approach him. This is how how you have to declare yourself to him. Naomi learns, Naomi, on the other hand, learns of Boaz's potential redemption through who? Through Ruth. So it's the Gentile telling the Jew about redemption. Isn't that interesting? Boaz is the Lord of the harvest. Ruth and Naomi in his presence are destitute. But Boaz takes Ruth, thereby also taking Naomi as well as, as uh, into the family in, as a fulfillment of grace. So let's look at, take a look at the prophetic types. Naomi as exiled from the land of promise coming to learn of her Redeemer through the Gentiles, is an image of Israel. Ruth, the Gentile bride brought into the covenant people, is an image of the bride of Christ, the church, which makes Boaz Christ, the Lord of the harvest. Now I want you to notice this. Naomi was not replaced by Ruth. Different origins, different blessings, different destinies. The church does not replace Israel. Both of them should honestly have a hand in hand relationship with each other. And I also want you to get this what legalism could not accomplish. Because again, uh, Naomi was a Moabitess. They were forbidden by law to intermarry. But what the law could not accomplish, grace did. All right, let's touch on what the scroll is for us right now. Now, um, again, there's a scene in Jeremiah chapter 32. I'll talk about that in just a second. I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself. Every scroll that is a legal document. Well, every scroll that's ever been, when, when papyrus is made, there's a smooth side and then there's a rough side, a side that you can write on, and a side where it's hard to write on. And a a sheet of papyrus in the olden days was made in about an eight and a half by 11 inch uh, piece of paper, which is kind of where we get the measurements for today's letter writing. And they are then adhered either by a gluing process or by a a sheeting process where you lay down two together, you moisten it, and then you roll it out. And then you take a, a wooden scroll and you make one giant sheet, and you condense it into a scroll. Uh, incidentally, what you have in your hands right now is would be considered a codex. Scrolls, again, are, are the things that you roll up together, like you see uh, would see paraded around in a synagogue or in a museum. Um, bounded pages together like this are what only came about around the 2nd century AD, and they're called codexes, just, just so that you know that. Any scroll with writing on the back of it, which is also sealed, is a legal document. It's either usually a will or a deed of title to something. And what is written on the back, the epistograph, is the legal instruction on who was entitled to take possession of the scroll as well as the land it describes and who was authorized legally to read the document in the first place. So when John sees Jesus receive the scroll, he knows what's going on. This is the title deed of the universe. This is the will of God the Father being handed to the Son. And we see this type of thing in a very earthly way hammered out for us in Jeremiah chapter 32 where God commands the prophet while he's in prison, knowing that his people's going to go into exile, God commands him to purchase land from one of his cousins. And he kind of raises a question about that because he knew he was going to go into exile. He knew the time of the exile was 70 years, so he wasn't going to be alive when they returned to the land. So he kind of picks up on the fact that this was evidence that the people of God would return and that God was going to be faithful. So the document itself established heirship and title to the land. It was made legitimate By the signature of two witnesses, I want you to pick up on that because everything in Israeli uh, culture requires no fewer than two witnesses to, to authorize it. And it was sealed, placed in an earthen jar and buried, only to be opened at the appointed time by his legitimate heir. So you see how the image is set up for what we're about to read. So, Revelation chapter six, the Lamb and the Scroll of Seven Seals. Any questions before we get into the nitty-gritty again? Anything from the comments? If if you've got a question, go ahead right now in the live comment section and type it out, and I will pause to answer them. And also while we're on the subject and while everyone's searching in God's word right now for Revelation chapter six. If you are being blessed by these instructions, please like on it, please comment something on it, and please use your social media to share it out. That helps us in an incredible way to make Christ known by making this discipleship ministry not only a part of our church, but a part of the greater community of Christians as well. So please help us to make Christ known through making our ministries here more accessible to more people. Because the more likes, the more comments, the more activity that YouTube detects on this video, the more likely it is to passively place it in the hands of somebody's um, somebody's feed as they're looking for something on Revelation or as they're looking for something on Christianity or even the Baptist faith. Whatever they type in, this will show up depending upon how much activity that YouTube sees that it's getting. So please help us to minister to others and to spread the word of God by liking, sharing, and subscribing. Enough of the commercial. Let's get into the word of God. So Revelation chapter 6. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! Well, come more literally, come and follow. I know some of your translations say come and see, but uh, it's the, the more literal translation is come and follow after me. I looked up and I saw that there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. By the way, just uh, by... Uh, <clears throat> I won't call it a point of trivia there, but the word the Greek used there for bow... Is the same word that the Septuagint uses in the in, in the book of Genesis for rainbow. So it could be that the Holy Spirit is being punny, that he's using the same word with two different connotations—a pun, P-U-N. And he does that quite recently, frequently. There's a bunch of different figures of speech scattered all throughout the Bible, but it could be that he is talking about the horsemen both having a weapon or also having evidence of that testimony that was broken for which they are being convicted now. Because the bow in Genesis, remember, when God set his bow in the sky, that was God's evidence, basically his seal on the covenant that he made with, uh, with Noah as a reminder that this covenant would stay in force. So let's keep moving. But that word, that I find that interesting that it's the same word used both places. A crown was given to him and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. In the Greek, the word crown there also is not uh, diadem, which is a ruling crown. It is Stephanus, which is a victory crown. It's the type of laurel crown that you would receive if you were participating in those Olympics and you took first place. So the victor, he was given the victor crown and he was sent out as a conqueror in order to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another and a large sword was given to him. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice from the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. This is massive inflation, a measure of meal for a whole day's worth of work is what he's talking about here. Yet I want you to notice that the luxury items, the oil and the wine, the luxuries were not touched. The necessities became too extreme. Isn't that interesting? When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Uh, Some of your... Particularly the. Yes, it's, it's the, the, the word there literally means pale or sickly green. Next to death, mottled. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword. By famine, by plague, and by the world, excuse me, and by the wild animals of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had slaughtered, had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. So by this time in the throne room of the universe, the martyrs are at the foot of the throne everybody in Fox's Book of Martyrs everybody that suffered under Chairman Mao everybody that suffered uh, in Cuba during its revolution who claimed Christ everybody who suffered um, in the USSR and its great Christian purge that were sent literally out on an ice floe all those that were murdered for the- all those that have suffered in Jerusalem all those who have suffered in um, for the sake of the word of God, are now at the throne, yelling, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be accomplished of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. And a violent earthquake occurred, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair, and the entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs and was shaken by high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Something so catastrophically brutal, the supernatural coming into the presence of the natural, that it distorts the heavens and the ground of the earth as well. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, every slave and free person hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They know who it is. They know who it is. And even more telling, verse 17, because the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand? So even if the church is called out, they know the story of Armageddon. They know what is taking place. Horsemen, the created beings, I should say, known as horsemen, are prophetically emblematic of judgment, watchfulness, and military strength. I thought in the back of my head earlier in the session, that there were four images but that's that's the three that I was able to pick up on when you look at them their colors indicate their purpose and their mission they give you an idea of what it is that they're about to accomplish what it is that they're being sent out to do the horsemen are not demons they are not demons in some of my commentaries I am reluctant to report that there are theologians out there that believe that if anything bad happens to anyone on the world, it has to be done by a demonic presence. However, these beings are following the orders of God. I don't know many demons that will do that willingly. And if Jesus is a soon-to-be rider on a horse, he's riding in very bad company, if that were the case. So these are commanded. Uh, these are created beings under the command of God. They are following orders. Not just God's decree as reported in the instructions of the scroll as it's being opened one seal at a time, but they're also following the orders of the created beings who are telling them what to do. The fact that one of the cherubim can say to them, Go and do this, and here's a pair of scales while you're at it, should tell you which side that they're on. They are bringers of judgment. They're more akin to the agents who went to Sodom and Gomorrah, agents of judgment. And I also want you to think about this. It says nowhere in Scripture that their mission ends when the next scroll the next seal is opened. We, we have this kind of working idea because of the way that it's being penned, that when uh, war is going out, and uh, when the seal for famine is popped, let's say, I might have got those mixed up, uh, that war all of a sudden stops and then famine starts, but not so. The inference is that the judgment brought to the world by each horse compounds every time that another horseman is sent forth. So it's not just conquest, it's conquest plus war then it's conquest plus war plus famine, then it's conquest plus war plus famine plus death. Not just one or the other, then the next, it's all four of them. I wanna talk about the heptatic structure um, before we leave, really quickly, because you'll see this happen over and over and over and over and over again. One of the things that is said is that um, you might be able to definitively see the overt number of sevens in the book of Revelation. How many times does the number seven occur? But never the heptatic ideals. How many times is seven implied as well? Uh, So anyway, in this case, there is a heptatic structure. There is a sevenfold structure. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls and so on usually the pattern is including the pattern with daniel daniel chapter 9 is that there are six of one thing and then there's an intermission or an interval before the seventh so there's sixth something pause and then the completion but usually there's like a, a, a russian doll a nesting doll effect all throughout the book of revelation where you have the six seals, then when the sixth seal is open, then there's seven something else that begins. But before that seven something else completes, then there's sixth of the something else, then there's a pause, and there's another row of seven somethings that begin. They're like nesting dolls, Russian dolls. Have you seen those things that they go together? Anyway. <clears throat> but when the seventh whatever it is comes about, that draws that group to completion. Now, here's a piece of trivia for you. The created beings referred to as horsemen. Where is the first time in Scripture it occurs? A lot of people would agree with you. And a lot of people would be wrong. It is in the Old Testament. Gold star. Uh, For next time... I actually want you to read in one of those places where horsemen of God are actually prophesied in Zechariah chapter 1 of all places. So reread Revelation chapter 6, read it more thoroughly, and I want you to think about your impression of the symbols. What are the colors? What are the images? What like the scales? What do you see in them? What are your first impressions before we really get into the nitty-gritty of them? I want you to write down both what your impressions are spiritually speaking and what you have been taught about them previously. Go ahead and jot down any misconceptions you think that you've de- done. Don't think of this as I'm right, you're wrong, that kind of thing. Don't, don't think of this as as, as a Facebook argument. Think of this as a chance for iron to sharpen iron. What were your previous teachings? What do you think about your previous teachings? Please maintain this journal. Again, this is a gift to both yourself and the future. This is a gift to anyone who is a Christian that you may mentor from this point on, and this is a gift to your kids as well. And share it with your group. Please, please, please do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. It seems like I may have read that somewhere before. Please get together with small clusters of your friends that are doing this together. Share what you journal. Well, this is what I heard this pastor say about this. Well, this is what I heard my, my Sunday school teacher from way back share those things. Because in the sharing, you will discover a truth that you might not have known otherwise. So please, as iron sharpens iron, get together with your friends and share these thoughts. Um, Any other questions before we dismiss? Anything from the comment section? All right, if not, Heavenly Father, it is again that we thank you. And we praise your holy name for the things that should propel us to being more bold and more courageous in our desire to proclaim your word, Lord, to see the suffering and the hopelessness of others, to know that there is something that we can do about it. I pray. That you would set us to the task of being the messengers of reconciliation that you have created us and redeemed us to be. So as we conclude this evening's session, as we enter your mission field, continue, please, to the power of your Spirit to give us the words, the strength, and the courage to help someone else come to you to be written in that book before it is everlastingly too late. Bless us now as you have promised, as we delve into this most precious of books. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share his word. And when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.